back to the Nerd Alert podcast. I'm Dave Rome, and instead of the usual group show, James and I have a special deep dive episode on a popular topic. This episode came about after Consumer Direct wheel company Hunt released a 1,213 gram ultra light carbon spoked disc brake road wheel with a hookless tubeless rim. And with a far more attainable price point than many other wheels in this weight category, interest was strong. However, where some of the other more prominent hookless road wheels have 23 to 25 millimeter internal widths to support the tire at lower pressures, Hunt has a marginally narrower 21 millimeter figure. And with that, some readers rightfully raised the question through our mailbag column over whether the recommended 72.5 psi maximum pressure related to hookless rims actually makes sense for riders of average weight and on popular road tire widths of 25 and 28 millimeters. As a technical consultant to some winning world tour teams, Josh Portner of Silka flicked us a message with some thoughts on this matter. And that got us thinking, perhaps it was time to check in again on where we're at in the world of road tubeless. What's new, what's coming down the pipeline, and what still needs to be fixed. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to chat all things tubeless and... uh, I guess I wanted to start with the fact that three years ago, you made the claim that 95% of the world tour would be rolling on tubeless within five to six years. So we're halfway there in terms of the time frame. Uh, how are we tracking? You know, we're, we're tracking pretty good. Uh, you know, we have a few outliers. Um, I would say notably, you know, we still have uh, Ineos, who I still, for some reason, want to call Sky, even though it's been like two or three years since that happened. But, uh, you know, they're still pulling out the lightweights and the tubies to try to hit 6.8 in the mountains. Um, you know, you've got the little small French and Italian teams that are still maybe not all quite the way there. And then I would say the bulk of the the top teams are there with the exception of the specialized teams who are still running clinchers with latex, although doing a ton of experimentation with, uh, with tubeless. And I think a lot of that's a lot more sponsor generated than it is, uh, you know, tubeless versus clincher versus tubular related. Yep. Can we get one thing straight out of the way right now? Yeah. Um, Josh, I'm curious, how much do you know that you can talk about with us today and how much do you know that you can't talk about today? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't even know if I know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I get the feeling that th- those two banks of knowledge are not necessarily the same. There's not like a full overlap in that Venn diagram. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And, and there's like the, the third wheel of that Venn diagram is like what what will come out if you get a couple of beers into me, um, <laughs> you, you know, you know, we, I, I think people know we work with teams more than more than one or two um everything from you know equipment selection i mean i don't know how much your audience knows but so you know we started this thing called aeromind which is the company that bought silka and aeromind uh is our llc and it was really just a vehicle to buy the silka name and start silka but in the years since uh especially once you know it'd been a couple years since i'd left SRAM and ZIP, people started coming and wanting stuff, you know, design this, uh, wind tunnel that. And so, you know, we, we do a very nice, uh, consulting business in the back end for both teams, for bike manufacturers. A good example would be, we, we had a national federation for the Olympics that didn't trust, uh, the bike that they were given. And they asked us to do, uh, 
essentially a, a track and wind tunnel study on it um, because they just didn't think that it worked. And, you know, we did. <laughs> and, and the good news for the, the manufacturer was actually what they were saying was true and that we probably likely just had athletes underperforming. Um, it, it was a little reminiscent, if you remember the uh, Under Armour speed skating suits from two Winter Olympics ago where the, the speed skaters were all like, it's the suits, they're terrible. And it was sort of one of those situations. And the Federation was like, that the riders don't trust it. And so, you know, we we did our thing with it and came back and said, no, it's it's fast. <laughs> You're not being lied to. You can't blame the bike. Um, awkward. Yeah, yeah, awkward. <laughs> Sorry, so, you were just slow. <laughs> yeah, so, so in that vein, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I know probably both from a team perspective that we can't talk about, but also like manufacturers bring us products to do stuff with and, you know, certainly can't talk about that. Um, but I can give directionality, right? And I think the directionality is, here is clear. I mean, the, you know, I, I, there's not a single company out there spending a dollar innovating tubulars, right? You know, there, there are no R&D labs for tubulars anymore. Um, and I, I don't know to the dollar, but I, I wouldn't, imagine there's more than, you know, 10 or $20 being spent to develop clincher tires anymore. The directionality there is clear. I mean, the, you go to these labs, you talk to the companies, you look at the product lines that they're creating. My God, it's, it's all tubeless. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think it makes sense from where they are that like, we have really, really good clinchers. And so clinchers will be the, the price point uh, OEM off the shelf product of the future. And, you know, the clinchers of today are damn good. They're way better than the inner tubes, right? I mean, that's the limitation for OE bikes. You know, nobody's going to ship an OE bike with latex tubes because they're, you know, too fragile, lose air, frustrate the customer. Um, well, you know, heck, the the tube far more dominates the performance than the tire does in that scenario. Um, so there's just no need to innovate uh, clinchers anymore. And that really leaves tubeless. And, you know, I'm, I am super excited with some of the things I see I see developing in tubeless. I, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm violating any agreements to say, you know, the, the future there really is this sort of like airtight. I think people, different people are going to call it different things, but I mean, it, it, I would boil it down to, you know, tubeless that just sort of works, <laughs> you know, no, <laughs> no voodoo, no magic, no, no watching, you know, seven YouTube videos. You're just going to like put it together and be like, Oh, it worked. Oh, you mean tubeless the way people expected it? Like, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't see what the problem is. I mean, I've got I've got an FAQ on cycling tips. It's only like 8,000 words or something like that. It's, right. it's easy. Right. It's a very easy right. topic. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess that leads us into the next question, which is Tubeless Road, it's, it's gaining traction. It's not going to go anywhere, but there are still some pretty big education hurdles to, to overcome. Um, one of those things that's where in that state of at the moment, I guess, is the whole story of hookless and crochet hooked style rims. Can you explain why hookless has such strict pressure guidelines related to it versus uh, a hooked rim? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in a nutshell, it's not as mechanically sound as that same design would be if it had a hook. Um, you know, we, we do a ton of testing in our lab here, both for manufacturers and for teams and for our own use. Um, and you just cannot 
with the same bead seat diameter and bead seat design, you just cannot achieve the same blow-off pressures with hookless that you can with hooked. But but hookless is the future, without a doubt, and that's largely going to be driven by price and manufacturability and, and some other things. And and not that that's not that that's bad. I get knocked by by you know some of the wheel companies get really mad when I I say things like, oh, it's a much cheaper rim to produce. Like, don't say that. Uh, but but it, it's it important. Is. That's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth, right? And 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 I think one, it's important to be honest. But I do think there are other advantages, and the fact that it's a much easier rim to produce really tightens down percentages of bad ones that are going to make it into the world. You know, the harder something is to make, the more bad ones are going to get out there and be problematic. And I, I think, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, you know, if you can take something that's got a you know, a, a tenth of a percent risk and take it to, a, you know, a hundredth of a percent risk, um, that's a good thing. And, you know, that that is what hookless is going to allow for. They're, they're easier to make, they're faster to make, they're cheaper to make. You know, I think in the long run, that's going to mean more, better, lighter carbon wheels for everybody with fewer problems. So I, I say all that as, you know, just saying it's cheaper to make, I, I get get a lot of grief for that, but it's true. And that's important. So it is without a doubt the future that, and that's the direction we're going in. But in, in the near term, we've got some real issues and, and that's, uh, you know, this, this latest ETRTO standard it, to me, I, I would say it was a little bit intellectually lazy. You know, you, you kind of do the calculations on the fitments that they're suggesting. And like, if you were to graph them, they're just all over the place, right? It, it's like, I look at that and, you know, nobody nobody did the math and like fit the curve to go, oh, here's like the prescription for safe uh, hookless. They just kind of said, oh, 72 and a half PSI limit, um, you know, and you can't be more than, I think it works out to on average be like, you know, three or four millimeters uh, wider on the tire casing size printed than on the uh, inner width of the hookless. But of course, that means almost nothing because the Every manufacturer measures differently. I mean, we're just all over the map with that stuff. And so I think the 72.5 PSI limit, honestly, it's just lazy. There's no other word for it. The other thing they did that I really strongly disagree with was, you know, we we had this 150% blow-off pressure with original ETRTO, right? So if I said 100 PSI max on a tire, it had to hold to 150. Um, With the new hookless standard, they've lowered that to 110%. And we have in our lab, and like the whole company has stories, you know, we we have blown tires catastrophically off of rims at eighty, and and to me that that that's just insane, right? I mean, you know, we partly because we go to events to this day. I mean, I we were just at a charity ride a couple weekends ago, and I had a older gentleman on this really cool specialized e bike thing, and it had like thirty five millimeter tires on it, and he wanted one hundred and twenty psi in these tires, and like. No, we won't. And, you know, I end up in this shouting match in a parking lot with this guy because he wants 120 PSI in a 35 millimeter tire. That's just, that's not safe, right? And and I think, you know, mm. we, we get down to looking at the sidewall and, you know, the I think the stated sidewall limit was 72 PSI. Um, the education and the behavior, I think of like your average, you know, non-cycling tips, nerd alert listener, you know, your non-internet uh, cycling tech forum reader, it's just not there yet. Um, and so I think my prediction is that there's there's going to be 
people who have problems just because they have no idea what they're doing when they stroke the pump that one more time that detonates the tire. And that that's a not a good situation. And when you say that this issue that we currently have with the ETRTO hookless maximum pressure rating that we have at the moment, the 72 and a half PSI thing, um, how much of this is maybe not so much related to laziness per se, but maybe more to the fact that we're in a rather unusual situation in that as far as I can think of, the cycling world is the only sort of wheeled performance industry where the expectation is that you can run any number of very various combinations of things and still be able, and the expectation is also that you can field service it with basic hand tools and mm -hmm. then you can inflate things with a basic hand, uh, hand pump, that sort of thing. Whereas if you look at the motorcycle world or, 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 you know, automobiles, there is a very, very regimented fitments for what tire sizes will go on what rim. And then because both the wheels and the tires are regulated, and because both of those things have very strict standards as to what the dimensions are supposed to be, then there's a lot less question as to what fits with what. Whereas now with this, with the cycling world, as you mentioned, we have things all over the map. Like even if we have prescribed standards now for rim dimensions and bead seat tolerances and all this other stuff, that's still only half the equation, right? Like there's, as far as I can tell, there's basically no standard whatsoever for the tire side of things currently, right? Uh, so, I mean, they're governed, they're in that standard. And I, yeah, I think you absolutely are getting to a, a critical point and I guess another one of my complainings, musings, you know, the, this ETRTO standard, if you ever try to find it, you can't, right? Because that's the, uh, the ISO who governs ETRTO. That's how they make their money. And so, you know, if, if you, even as the most curious consumer or team owner or, or one wants to know what works with what, you have to buy a $500 book, like physical book, right? That, that they d deliver by DHL. And then you have to read the book <laughs> and understand it. Oh yeah. No, we, we've looked into buying it and I think it was 500 euros. Actually. Yeah, it, it probably is. Right. I mean, and then we still can't share yeah, the information in it. And then you're not allowed to talk about it. Right. Yeah. That's the other. Yeah. And so, and so I think, you know, it also puts the manufacturers in a, in a spot and, you know, we see this and I, I lived this in my previous world at Zip, but I see it with some of our customers, uh, companies all the time. Um, they're technically not really allowed to disclose ETRTO either, right? And so you look at the ways the different manufacturers are handling this and they're kind of uh, – they all have to kind of beat around the bush a little bit as well, you know, because I, I think it's – I think of Envy is a good example, right? They have this great chart of like allowed and disallowed tires. But, you know, there's a lot of this 32 millimeter tire is disallowed and this 32 millimeter tire is allowed. I mean, that that's not in the ETRTO book. That's the, they use their test lab to go, no, that one, you know, that combination's bad. And I think some of that is just, you know, you've got different uh, elasticities of bead from the tires and that's not very tightly controlled. You know, the, the argument, I mean, what it took us, uh, I was in the bodies arguing this for almost 20 years of my career the tire people want the precision to be on the rim side and the rim people want the precision to be on the tire side, right? And so you end up in this situation of, you know, uh, and I, off the top of my head, don't remember the exact numbers and it probably would get in trouble if I said them, but, you know, it's like plus two millimeters, minus one millimeter. And then the, the rim people are going, no, we want to be, you know, <laughs> plus two, minus two, and you should be plus one, minus one. And, you know, and, and that has 
really real effects for all these companies upstream because you know this this sort of tolerancing and precision in manufacturing it, it's it's nonlinear to cost right I mean you know cut, cutting a, a a tolerance in half right is is like an exponential cost increaser and so you know of course the you know I've been in a ton of meetings where the rim people are saying well you know this this is going to make the cost of carbon wheels go up hundreds of dollars. Uh, and, and the scrap is going to go up and that's an environmental problem and, you know, all of these issues. And then the tire people are saying, well, yeah, but for every set of wheels, you're going to have three, four, five, six sets of tires over its life. And so you don't want the tire cost to go up because then that's like a recurring additional cost on the consumer at the tire, right? And so I mean, you can see why. And of course, it, you know, at the same time, both sides are arguing from the customer's perspective while full well knowing in the back of their minds that like they want to make some money too, so, I mean, you know, I think th these really are complex and complicated things, and I agree with you completely. I, the other thing I would throw in there is that our sport, and I, and I could guarantee all three of us on this podcast, I mean, our those of us who are nerdy about this sport probably ended up here because we like breaking the rules and doing our own thing anyway, <laughs> right? And so there's a whole lot of like, well, you know, I don't like that shifter with that derailleur. I'm, <laughs> you know, I think of the... You know, got in a great conversation with Leonard Zinn the other day who said, you know, like still half the questions he gets for his column are mixing and matching things that shouldn't be mixed and matched. And how, you know, back in the friction days, that was like, yeah, I'm sure that'll work. And now it's probably like, it probably won't work, but try it. Then you get into rims and tires and it's like, my God, that now it's a safety issue, right? I mean, you're, you know, your index shifting is a little bit drifty over 12 speeds, when you mix two things, that's annoying, right? Your tire blows off your rim, you know, under high cornering loads or something. That that's a huge problem. So I I, that's I think potentially our, more than annoying. Potentially more than annoying. Yeah. So I you know I I I really do try to feel it from all sides. But I I my I think my point of the intellectual laziness is they are treating a twenty five millimeter tire in the same way that they're treating a thirty two millimeter tire, and yet the the forces and loads at the bead trying to exit the uh, exit the rim are completely different, right? 72 PSI in a 32 is a whole other universe compared to that same pressure in a 25. So we get this question all the time as for as far as like, you know, why is the same amount of pressure in a larger volume tire more force or more dangerous? than a lot, the same amount of pressure in a narrower tire. I mean, I know the answer to this question, but I'd love to hear you explain it to people. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it comes down to this thing we call casing tension. Um, and it's essentially that as the, uh, you know, you think of it as a, the easiest mental model is a cylinder, right? Like a, think of a, a CO2 cartridge, right? So, you know, uh, as a CO2 cartridge, you know, grows in size, the wall thickness there actually grows at a faster rate than the diameter of the cartridge. And that's because the amount of surface area that that pressure is acting on uh, is growing significantly. And so, uh, you know, when you've got, you know, so much amount of pressure and now it's over twice the surface area, now the, you know, the forces involved, right, are double. <laughs> um, and, and that keeps going. And then, of course, you, you take that circle in our mental model and you rotate it around in a torus. And now you've got also just the, you know, things go cubic, right? And so this is where we talk about like the non-linearities of these things. It's not, um, you know, 10% isn't 10%. 10% is now, you know, some some much bigger number when you you break the math out. 
Um, it, and it's the, it's the same thing with, you know, when we start getting into like calculating these tire pressures and things, um, you know, the, the and you, you look at the calculator, like if you take our calculator or any of them, but I, I think ours is the best. <laughs> um, and you, you take that and you, you, if you were to plot that out, you would see that, you know, those are not straight lines. Um, and they're not straight lines because we're working with things that have volume and therefore, you know, there's, there's nonlinearities. And I think that's, as humans, we don't think well in nonlinearities, <laughs> right? We, we tend to think of things as being linear over like, uh, you know, small, I don't know, small sections or small portions. Um, and so that's where I think it just, it, it just works differently than our, our simple mental models make it want to work, I guess is probably the easiest way to put that. But, but, uh, but the other thing that, that happens here too, is that in our industry, because there are standards we have are weak or poor and they're not tightly controlled or they're self-regulated by the manufacturers. You also have this thing where like, you know, 28 millimeter tire is not a 28 millimeter tire, like ever, <laughs> unless you're really lucky. But I mean, even from the same manufacturer, right? It, it's not going to be this. That doesn't mean the same thing across models, and and even within a manufacturer, you can see uh, as much as a millimeter variance just in between the molds used to make a given tire from a given manufacturer. And you know, when twenty eight is your baseline, a one millimeter delta, that's a big percentage of change. And so, yeah, these things. It seems like such a simple thing, and then when you really start to get into it, it's like, wow, this is complicated. Um, and, and so that's where, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to offend our industry. Like these are not easy problems to solve because the, on top of solving them, you then have the challenge of communicating them to people. Right. So it's like, let's take this super complicated thing. Let's simplify it into a, something we can actually solve consistently. And then let's take that and, you know, boil that down into the three to five bullet points that people can remember when you tell them that's a really hard problem. Yeah, you. When we were emailing back and forth, you you said the word nuance, which uh, uh, I, I guess you used the word in in terms of what's actually lacking in terms of the the hookless guidelines at the moment. Uh, I've seen a few rims uh, myself recently, actually. Uh, like Roval have their their gravel wheel. They have uh, a little sticker that tells you uh, maximum pressures for various different tire widths. So there's there's four different tie widths printed on the rim, and there's different maximum pressures. And those pressures go lower the wider the tire gets. Do you think that's where the industry needs to head with with current road tubeless? That we need to have that that distinction that seventy two point five psi is not the one pressure for all, and it does vary. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the wheels should come with some sort of chart. I think the tire should come with some sort of. Um, Honest measurement. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, oh gosh, guy in the industry, Josh Dietz. We'll have to look this up and throw it back in because I can't remember. But he came up with a tool probably ten years ago, and I remember thinking like, who cares? Um, but it was essentially like a measurement tool that you could put a tire on and get the actual casing, uh, like circumferential inscribed length. Uh, and then he had like a little, almost like a slide rule thing that you could kind of calculate what the tire width would be. Um, really with, with hindsight, it's like that thing was way ahead of its time. Um, but I, I personally, I, I also think we need to push manufacturers of tires to be honest about that, uh, 
circumferential width of that tire. Um, and, and also, I'd, I would love to see them have some honesty as to the um, the tolerancing involved. You know, mm. but I mean, there's you know, not uh, to pick on Continental, and I, I love <laughs> love them and, and have worked with them in the past. You know, if if I have a GP four thousand and a five thousand TL and a five thousand TR, and I mount those three at twenty eight millimeters on the same rim, I I end up with almost a three millimeter physically measured difference between them. And so, you know, I that's hard. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This was this was years ago. I think I think this is when I was still working for Bike Radar. It was quite a while ago, and I wrote a column talking about how I was basically just begging tire manufacturers to be more informative on their tires as far as what the what their width measurements actually referred to or what they were what they were trying to refer to. Like at the very least, what I was trying to ask tire manufacturers to do was to print right on the tire what that printed width, um, like what what internal rim width was supposed to correspond to that measured tire width. Um, and to me at the time, that seemed like a pretty simple ask. Um, and it's the sort of thing now where you can see how from a tire manufacturer point of view, they're like, well, of, like, of course, this number is automatically goes along with this ETRTO reference rim measurement that the public isn't allowed to see that we don't print on the tire or the tire box. So this, like that number doesn't really mean anything. Um, what, how, how do you think that should be solved? Because as you have, as you've pointed out, and as we have pointed out numerous times, as probably a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are very well aware of, like you said, that number that's printed on the tire doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, so what would it take for that number to actually mean something like I look at my car tire and like on my car, I've got, what are they like 205, 4017s or something. And like every one of those numbers is very, very specific as far as what that number means. And we don't have that for bike tires. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we probably need at least one other number. Um, and I think in my mind, ideally that number would be a range and that would be the range of inner bead widths that tire works with. Um, and, and I think the challenge for the tire manufacturers is that I think every time they put a number on a tire, people ask questions about it or they potentially worry that that means there's something different about that tire that's not in the others, right? And so I think if we're going to make it stick, you're going to have to force everybody to do it. You know, if I'm, you know, to pick on Continental again, if I'm Continental and I say, you know, this, you know, 32 millimeter GP5000 TR works best on a, you know, 25 millimeter internal width ETRTO rim, there will be customers coming at me and saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go buy, you know, Hutchinson because they don't limit me to the internal width of the, you know, and, and of course, you know, I, I have a million of these conversations every year with people. Um, and a lot of them over, you know, products that I don't, you know, I don't even make or sell any of these products. Um, but you get into these arguments over like, oh, well, that's limited. It only works on this. And you're like, well, no, no, that's not what they're saying. Um, you know, they're saying it works best on that. Uh, but I, I would, from <laughs> hundreds of customer experiences, saying something works best with something else very often drives that customer away because they want to do something else and they assume that that's not true with that other product. You know, well, Michelin doesn't limit what I can run, so I'm going to run Michelin. 
<laughs> well, you know, that, that doesn't mean anything in this context, right? I'm sure the Michelin tire will have an optimal thing also, but they're just not telling you what that is. Um, I, I would love to see that range um, on the sidewall. Uh, and then I would also like to see, personally, I would like to see hooked and hookless treated uh, treated differently, at, at least in some sort of manufacturer's chart of what's allowed. Because I, I know certainly in our lab when we test things, I mean, the these things can be all over the place. Um, and, you know, like right now my, my commuter bike, um, you know, we've been doing this uh, tubeless tire sealant testing for the last year. And I've been commuting on these uh, uh, GP5000 32 millimeters, and I've got them mounted on a set of those 3T discus, the 4540, that's super crazy wide. So it's a 29 millimeter inner, but it's hooked. And so we can safe, like, uh, you know, I've taken those things to 90 PSI in my lab and they don't, without blowing off. And the, the actual, like uh, for my weight, the ideal pressure in that setup is like 38, right? So I know like I'm a factor of two below having an issue, even though I'm technically violating ETRTO. And that combination is like a perfectly stunningly beautiful toroidal section. I've had it in the wind tunnel. It's beautiful aerodynamically. Uh, that 32 millimeter tire measures almost 36 millimeters. I mean, it it feels like a GP motorcycle, right? I just want to remind people that you're talking about the wheel and tire setup on your commuter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am spoiled. I will say that. I, <laughs> but but partly, you know, I, I'm commuting through. We have terrible, terrible roads here in Indy, and we're doing tubeless tire, uh, tubeless sealant testing, right? And so, you know, in the last year, I've managed to give myself like six flats on this combination. Uh, none of them that were actually flats because thank you, sealant. Um, but, you know, that's a combination I look at and think, oh, my God, this is like magic. I mean, this combination would change people's existences to think. I mean, it, it's a stunning, rides beautifully, um, comfortable enough to commute on. I mean, corners on rails, you can show up on the fast group ride on your way home. And it, it's just a stunning setup. But yet we can't say to do it because it's totally illegal by the rules. And then on the flip side of that, I've got 28 millimeter tires that blow off a hookless rim at 80 when they say 72 on the sidewall and you do the math and you're like, well, technically I should probably be in the, you know, high fifties, low sixties at my weight on that setup with the way these things measure. And my safety factor now is much lower. And yet that's totally allowed, right? I, you know, to me, that's, I don't that's know. Terrifying. I, that's a frustration. Well, this. I mean, you're talking about a safety factor of what is that? 1.1, I guess. Is that it? Yeah, essentially. What other industries have an allowable safety factor of 1.1? Like uh, that's that's I mean, <laughs> fairly unheard of, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, even even aerospace. I mean, they they bump up against that because you have to in certain things, but then you have aerospace maintenance and inspection. And I, I mean, I, I, I back to where. I use that word lazy. You know, I think they just came up with something that they thought could be safe enough, work good enough. And I, I do think they, I think that number came from this belief that people would would know better and not run those pressures anyway. Uh, and I think that's just, I, I don't, I think that's just not true. It's overly optimistic, at least. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to overly belabor this, this concept, but I feel like certainly over multiple episodes and multiple written articles and stuff, we have we have made very, very clear the quagmire that is the current state of 
uh, road tubeless wheels and tires. Um, so I, I, I think the three of us can agree that it's a mess and it's still going to be a mess for a while, even as wheel and rim manufacturers continue to adopt this newly accepted ETRTO rim dimension standards for, for hooked and hookless tubeless rims. There's still going to be this, uh, God knows how much legacy product that's out there. That's, you know, sort of marked mostly unmarked and like, it's just going to be a, a huge mess. Um, so I think we can agree that for a while, for quite a while, maybe forever, it is still going to be a giant mess. What I'm curious about though, is your perspective on in an ideal world, what would actually be required for it to be the way that it should be? Hmm. I think we need to tighten up um, the tolerancing and measurement standards on both sides. I, I think the the harsher tolerance should fall on the rim side of things because, quite frankly, I think that's the easier one to control. You know, I think a lot of the pushback there is that a lot of the lower cost manufacturing will struggle with that. And so that's going to keep prices from coming down, particularly in carbon wheels. I think at some level you could argue that it's it's probably worth it. <laughs> I think there would have to be a sharing of – I will tell you that the, the patent landscape around this is an absolute nightmare. There's hundreds and hundreds of them from different companies and um, – you know, a, a good example is like there's this patent on this little lip that, you know, once the the tire bead kind of pops up onto that shelf, there's like a little lip that keeps it from going backwards. And, you know, multiple companies, starting with Mavic, when they partnered with Hutchinson for the original UST, have patented the heck out of that little bump, right? And so now that some of those original patents are coming off, people are able to do that. But there's certain things like that that, you know, like that that's a legitimate function and safety thing that, you know, I get it. Everybody's got to, you know, make money in this world, but, you know, license that for like cheap, right? If it, if it really improves um, safety uh, and, and fitment, license that out there. You know, Hutchinson in their original tubeless patents has some stuff on like little wiper shapes on the bottom of the tire to like improve the ceiling so that the tire would beat up faster without needing like a uh, a compressor or, you know, a, a canister style pump, right? That if you just have like a windshield wiper lip on the, on the bottom of the, of the bead, you get a better seal earlier as it rides up and over. I mean, I kid you not, there's probably 200 patents on these, these certain things. And I, I would love to see the industry as a whole come together and say, you know, like, okay, these seem to improve safety and customer experience. Let's share them or create a, a low cost licensing agreement or, Something along those lines. You know, I, I know when, like, God, 2011, 2012, I was managing the, the – I was the technical director at the WFSGI, the World Federation for Sporting Goods um, Industries for a Bicycle. And, and you know, we had this carbon clincher safety problem, right? People were melting rims, and which is kind of funny to think about. Like, you never hear that now with disc brakes. But uh, that was a real problem. And, you know, we had spent an absolute – fortune trying to solve that at zip. And we, you know, we had this number, this test that we knew worked and we had, you know, two years of product in the field with like no failures for that reason. Um, and, you know, as a result, I, we talked stand day at SRAM into letting us share and just give that to the industry. Um, I don't think that's like a widely, we didn't 
talk about it in any big way or, you know, we didn't like market with it. But, you know, that was one of those like, hey, Stan, we we spent a quarter million dollars on this test machine and two years of time and we developed this thing. And but it eliminates this type of failure. Like, can we share this with the industry? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's safety like that. That makes sense, you know, and um, and that's a little bit different. Right. That's not a like a patent that we were, uh, you know, potentially losing money on. But it, I, I think if we had just a couple more companies thinking a little bit more of like growing the whole pie rather than growing their piece of the pie. Um, we could have that better experience for all. And, you know, if, if we could be like, hey, instead of us all, you know, sharks in the bloody waters fighting over 10% of the market as tubeless, what if we made tubeless really flipping unbelievable and amazing and it was like 80% of the market and then we could all fight over that? <laughs> that that would be great. But I, I, I do think it'll take something like that because I think with some of the patents out there that really seem to work, still have years, years of... Uh, of validity left in them. And then what about on the tire side? What, what needs to happen over there? I, I think you, you just need to get a whole bunch of people from different countries and backgrounds and belief systems to agree on, on a bunch of really highly technical things. I mean, that, that one to me is feels so hard. I, I think we probably need some sort of better international measurement standard. Um, you know, like, Right now, most of this ISO stuff in bicycle is all self-reported. And, you know, I I am not one typically to want like more oversight or more bureaucracy and things. But, you know, I, I do think if there were two or three labs worldwide that you had to send, you know, you send your tires to and, you know, they wanted, you know, whatever, 10 samples from each mold and, and you had to prove that you could hit some number, I, I think that would probably put more time, energy, effort, money into solving that with, with some of these companies. And, and I, I think, you know, the downside of that is prices will go up, right? I mean, I think that's that, that sort of cost of goods thing, you know, as somebody who's like lives in this world, you know, it's always in the comments, right? It's cycling tips and everywhere. It's really bad at pink bike, but you know, like you're insane. How can they charge that? And, you know, and, and a lot of these, these products, especially at these really, incredible levels of engineering or these really tight safety factors or whatever. I mean, you know, your companies are six figures in debt before they're ever selling a product, right? And 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 that's on top of the, you know, you might have five or six engineers and, and a factory and all this equipment and, you know, quarter million dollars in mold tooling and a quarter million dollars in development cost. And so, you know, it, day one, you're just, you're trying to like sell this thing and make money. And if if day one comes a month later because you had to send 200 uh, physical samples to some laboratory and pay, you know, a thousand dollars a sample or something to, um, to test it. Somebody's got to pay for that. And, and so I think, you know, these things all have trade-offs, right. But I, I think this is certainly an area where it is safety critical and I really do think we could improve it significantly. All right. So basically the, uh, the, the end message there is, it's not going to happen <laughs> from a consumer <laughs> side of things. Like it just seems like it just seems like it is such a daunting thing that yeah. to expect some significant level of cooperation above and beyond what we've already seen on the rim side, but then seeing even you know that and then some on the tire side just seems out of the realm of possibility. Realistically, it just seems like we are going to continue to have 
all sorts of questions on the consumer side as far as what works with what and what is ultimately safe, I guess. Well, I, I shouldn't say ultimately safe because there are there are you know established test test standards and stuff like that, but it's it's more like how much can you get away with? And I think at this point it seems like it is quite highly recommended that people uh, do a little less experimenting with their wheel and tire setups than maybe they had become accustomed to in the past. I, uh, I, I think in the short term, that feels pretty accurate. Um, you know, I will say that the other thing, so, you know, I think in my, my scenario is pretty unrealistic. I do think, and I have to believe at some level, and I think we've seen this maybe a little bit, but I think in time, and it will take time, but I think there's some natural market forces that will improve this. And one of the things I, I, I'm excited about is sort of this, you know, you see like, you know, Zip has partnered with Hutchinson to make tires that work well with their rims, right? And and Giant with their Kadex um, series, I don't even know who's making those tires, but they're clearly optimizing for themselves. And, you know, the reality is that there's like four companies make all the tires, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like most things in most industries. It's like, oh, yeah, there's like four factories that make all those. And it, it's probably more like eight. But, um, you, you know, it, but I, I do think we – and we saw this. It's like one of the things that keeps me pretty bored with like carbon bikes is that they all come from like whatever, 10 factories. The good news for the consumer is if you're buying a carbon bike – the chances that factory is internalizing the knowledge of all the bikes from all the 30 or 40 or 50 brands that they've ever made, right? And so I think we've seen, you know, carbon bikes these days, even at pretty low price points, are pretty darn good. You know, I mean, they're, they're, there's there's a lot of counterfeit stuff out there and there's a lot of other nonsense. But, you know, if you go buy a, you know, a, a $2,000 giant Right, right now, like that's a damn good bike, and that's you know the fact that you know Giant is making bikes for like Trek and Colnago and you know themselves, and right, I mean, like, like they know how to make an amazing bike, and I, my hope is that with there being as few factories as there are for the tires, that within a couple generations you'll have enough internalization. You know, you're going to have you know Vittoria makes. Like or Lion Tire in Thailand makes tires for like half the brands that you know you that our readers can think of, right? So I think it internal within that organization they are going to be growing the knowledge now of oh well you know this wheel brand is asking for this and this wheel brand is asking for that and and I think it's going to be on they're going to see the market opportunity there to make their products work better with those products and I I have to believe in time that's going to start to drive us towards some sort of, uh, I, I don't know, some sort of shared goal out in the future, right? Or shared place out in the future where, where all this stuff will work at least a little bit together or better together. Now, of course, I say that and then I turn around and, you know, we have like 478 bottom bracket standards. Um, so, you know, not to say that somebody's not going to like come out tomorrow and be like, I'm doing reverse hookless or reverse hooked or, you know, some crazy new, you know, quote unquote standard um, that just blows this, you know, all out of the water. But I, I have to think because there's some safety uh, aspects here that there is some sort of long-term convergence towards something. I, I just honestly don't know what that is. Let's uh, let's maybe move the conversation to something a little bit more, more fun as far as road tubeless stuff. Yeah. 
Okay. Hold on. Dave, you want something to add? Or- yeah. I, well, no, just uh, on, on the moving things, I, I want to talk about the uh, the pressure calculators just for a moment before we uh, perhaps move into talking about things that go in the tire. Um, okay. There's probably two popular pressure calculators on the market. You've got the the SRAM zip calculator, and then you've got your, your own um, from Silka. Some readers have pointed out that when you're of average American weight, 85, 90 kilograms, what's that, 180, 190 pounds? Uh, Is that average? I believe as far as your, your nation goes, yes. Wow. Mm. Okay. Uh, I, I could be mistaken on that, but I believe for male, yeah, adult, I, I think so. Um, there are some people really raising that average, though. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> But uh, basically, yeah, as, as you get into those weights, they, they've remarked that there's kind of a flattening of the recommended pressures. So the recommended pressures keep rising up with weights until you get to a weight that you start to hit that 72 PSI maximum limit. And then the, say, the zip pressure calculator just starts to recommend 72 PSI or thereabouts for, mm. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. What's going on here? So to be clear, so yeah, ours does not do that. Yeah. Like our, ours, I think is pretty, I mean, it, it's nonlinear, but it, it does keep going up. Um, yeah. The, the other calculators out there, uh, and I think the, the Zipsram one uh, included, they're, they tend to be based on uh, 15% drop as sort of their underlying math. And so, you know, the Frank, the famous Frank Berto charts amongst us nerds um, of looking at, you know, at what pressure under what weight does a tire drop or uh, compress 15% on a flat surface? And so these have been out forever and people have used them and Jan Heine is, uh, you know, a big proponent of that. Um, and what I see like when I run their calculator is that it's 15% drop until you get into that, yeah, 70 something PSI range. And then they really kind of bend that curve into sort of an asymptote of never getting above that. And And I think that's, you know, again, I've lived in that world. They they have a pressure limit on their wheel and they don't want you to go above it. And so they are not going to tell you that your optimal pressure is a pressure above <laughs> the maximum <laughs> pressure. Um, you know, and the, and the reality there is if if you're if you're using that calculator, how I would do it, and, and our calculator actually has a, a pinch flat energy calculation that happens in the in the back end. If if all of a sudden it you need a pressure that isn't right. It's telling you, hey, the real problem here is your tire's too small. You know, if you go in and you say like, you know, I'm a 240-pound American and I'm going to ride the cobbles of Paris-Roubaix on 21s, you know, the calculator's like, whoa, dude, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you're going to break a wheel or pinch flat. Um, you just need a bigger tire. And I, you know, I think that's uh, – from what I've seen from other calculators, that that's pretty common, right? If if our brand has an 80 psi weight limit, then we're just going to go to 80 and never above. You know, our calculator I think is a little interesting. You know, and we're we're certainly learning its shortcomings. Um, you know, a lot of the work we do with pro teams is sort of a real world tire pressure optimization, and so you know we'll do like a, a virtual elevation uh, testing in in the wild. So. You know, pretty much every year I'm at Roubaix with a couple of teams and we're riding the Arnberg Forest over and over again, trying different pressures with with the riders to try to see what, you know, what's really optimal for them in that year. Um, 
And so we've got this data set, I mean, thousands of data points across hundreds and hundreds of writers um, doing this. And so what we did was we just took all of these real-world optimizations and sort of curve fit them. And then using those curve fit equations, we can interpolate the lines and, you know, the data points in between, right? So, you know, if I've got a 150-pound guy and a 160-pound guy and, you know, they both put out these numbers on this size of tire, I can draw a line between them and go, oh, if you're in between that, you're probably in between that. Um, I think our calculator is a little bit fun. You know, like if if you know Sagan's weight and the measured width of his tires for his Roubaix win and you put it in, you get the pressure that he wrote, right? Because like that's that's an actual data point in the calculator. And uh, I think we have something like 40 Pro Tour victories uh, actually living as data points within the calculator. Um, but one of the like one of the things that we are learning that's with a, a test rig that we've built here that is quite interesting is we're learning that our data actually probably skews a little bit high for your average person because we are dealing with the fittest athletes, right? And you think of like the, that whole breakpoint transition to impedance as you're going from tire hysteresis dominated to rider body hysteresis dominated. Well, you know, my standard American 185 pound body is a higher hysteresis than your average pro tour athlete, <laughs> right? And so our data it likely, and, and we're, we're doing a lot of work to measure this now, our data likely skews a little bit high because the those low hysteresis riders are just going to have a higher transition point. Um, similarly, Almost all of our testing is done with like the best tires you can get, right, in that moment. Um, and high hysteresis tires are going to move that data point as well because you're you're changing the equation. And so, you know, it's fun to say, you know, I, I think I, the way I normally put it is I think I truly believe our calculator is the best calculator happening in the world right now. And in the same breath, I will tell you that there's at least two ways that we know that it's wrong, <laughs> which is an opportunity to make it better. Um, because they're just, you know, this is still an evolving field. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't even want to pretend that we know all this stuff, right? Or we know I had a, a mathematician uh, at a university has been kind of lighting me up uh, in my inbox over the, uh, you know, what's what's the equation for the impedance curve? I'm like, dude, we don't know, you know? And he's like, well, why don't you know? You Here's all the ways you could study it. And like, I, I don't get paid to study the shape of the impedance curve, right? I get paid <laughs> to figure out what the breakpoint is. Like, you know, you need to get a PhD student and go figure out the shape of the impedance curve. Like, that's really fascinating. But like, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I don't care, but like, I, uh, you know, I don't care. <laughs> so, but I would be thrilled, right? I would be thrilled to... Um, if somebody did that test and, you know, hell let's, you know, in any PhD students out there who want to define the shape of the impedance curve, like, you know, let's name it after you. I, I don't, I think that would be great fun. I just, I have no way of monetizing that. Um, you know, cause quite frankly, you know, with our athletes, you know, if you don't take Peter Sagan past his breakpoint pressure and then go, all right, Peter, let's take another hour and do three more pressures higher to try to define the shape of this curve, you know, you're like, no, this, this guy's busy and I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> we've got other things to do. So, <laughs> you know, so that, so that's really where that comes from. But I, I mean, it is exciting to me that I think this just seems like such a mundane thing that we all should have had figured out like a hundred years ago. Right. And that we get to go play in the sandbox and be like, Oh, never thought of that. You know, I, 
oh, wow, yeah, that, I bet that has an effect. Let's, let's look at it. And we're still learning. Um, and, and of course, for the athletes that we work with, I mean, this is like a true, that's true competitive advantage. Speaking of pros and uh, pro athletes and, and teams and that sort of thing, and, and moving away from, I guess, what I was describing earlier as like sort of the quagmire and rim and tire standards mm. and that sort of thing, um, what's, what are you seeing on the pro racing aspect of thing? What, what's happening with tire technology? Uh, how do you mean? Like that you can talk about. Just generally, like other than tubeless or? Yeah. I mean, like our, what, what do you know of that? And you can talk about what, what do you know of that teams and riders are experimenting with? What are they, what are they looking at to optimize performance? What are the sort of the, Mm. what are the characteristics that they're, that they're concentrating on right now? Um, I mean, the, the question always seems to be, you know, go faster, go faster, go faster, but you know, there's always a break point, like you were mentioning. Um, so what, what are teams looking at now? I honestly, the, the biggest one that I'm probably get pulled into is trying to help sort the logistics. Um, you know, a, a topic that I, I think, you know, the, the younger me found completely uninteresting and the older me is fascinated by, but you know, it's like, it's kind of like we're seeing with this Ukraine Russia thing happening now, right? You see the Russians are overrunning their logistics and you think back to World War II, right? Where a lot of these things were like, oh, if we could just keep them from moving for two days, you know, you could gain the advantage. You know, life inside of a pro tour team, as much as people like me, you know, want to make it sound like we're just optimizing the the shit out of everything to the, you know, the the last possible. And, you know, that's like for maybe one rider in a handful of events. Um, it, it may be a little bit broader than that. But, but, you know, when you take it a step back, it's really like – at some level, like, okay, we've got a, you know, 400 day lead time to order the wheels for the 2023 season and the tire, you know, like we, we are ordering the tires and the wheels now for 2023. Uh, and, and within some teams, it's even earlier. And so, you know, some of what we get pulled in for are things like, um, okay, you know, our sponsor has this new wheel and here's the wheel and then here's our tire options and, you know, what should my breakdown of tires be, right? I don't want to go all in on the 25, you know, all season compound, right? Only to find out that the riders hate it in the rain and it's this, you know, I I mean, and those are the things that, you know, quite frankly, like, you know, the riders, the riders deciding that your rubber compound sucks in the rain will like completely undo a sponsorship and a team and make the director's life a living hell for a whole season. Um, And that's probably like two or three orders of magnitude worse than winning that one time trial is amazing. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, it's funny to think of a lot of the stuff we do is, is along those lines. I mean, we, you know, we actually just finished this year. You'll see it a project for EF where, and kind of very last minute for computer mounts that they move from Garmin to Wahoo and all the riders are riding the vision integrated uh, handlebar and vision only makes a Garmin uh, compatible mount for that bar because it's a one piece, it's a single piece injection molded mount that bolts to the bottom. Uh, And so the team came to us and said like, we can't, you know, we're like trying to cobble together like, a puck inside the Garmin puck with a Wahoo puck screwed to it, you know? And so, 
you know, we, we got, I had this, you know, dropped on my desk, like, you know, second week of December, like, you know, how quickly can you design and, and fabricate a mount for us that's aerodynamic and right. It ticks all the boxes, um, you know, and then they need like 150 of them, you know, by January to like give to all the bikes and all the riders and, and, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, I think in the, in the bowels of pro cycling, it's a lot of that, right. It's, um, it, you think of even, you know, Perry roubaix I mean, an average, like, you know, two years ago, I spent the two weeks prior to Roubaix with EF and, uh, you know, that's 72 dedicated wheels that needed 72 dedicated tires and cassettes and some riders want special chain rings all for one day. Right. And so it's like two weeks of build up into that and we're tuning tire pressures and we're doing all this crazy work. And then, you know, the rate, the ride is over, everybody leaves. And then the mechanics are like, well, we're, we're ripping all these tubies off. You know, I mean, you're, you're just going back to it. And then if that isn't bad enough, you put yourself to think all of the product was ordered almost a year prior. Right. So, I mean, there's just this huge logistical thing that happens. Uh, so I think, you know, it, it's fun to talk about like, you know, we're going to do this one thing with this one set of wheels to get to this one time trial, or I'm actually working on a very cool 3D printed time trial product for the tour uh, that we just got a couple weeks, they asked for a couple weeks ago. And, you know, that's super exciting and super fun and we'll probably hand carry it and fit it. And, you know, that's like great stuff for you guys to write about in cycling tips. But, you know, the reality is that's maybe happening for like one or two parts for one rider per team, if you're lucky, you know, the rest of it really is just a much bigger, like, okay, how do we just keep the wheels from falling off this thing and keep the riders from hating, hating us. And, um, so back to the very original question though, I, I think the, the future as I see it are wet weather compounds, uh, I think are absolutely going to be key. And, and we see it as such an important performance factor that it, it's one hard to measure in the lab but it is just such a confidence booster or crusher for the athletes that it's just so critical. You know, and that's, that's one of those things. I think it's, it's objectively really hard to look at that and go, is that really better? Is it, you know, is it really faster? And, and that's when we're, you know, my current stance on it is like, I, I, nobody cares if it's faster, right? If the riders believe it handles better in the rain, my God, that's valuable. Um, and if the riders think, you know, it just takes one guy losing it and the ride, it's back to our speed skating suits, right? And the riders go, oh, no, no, that's a problem. And then the cascade effect of that, you know, well, we have 800 of these tires in the warehouse and now the riders don't want to ride them and there's a 200-day lead time to replace them. And, you know, I mean, you just like, it's like the sweater unravels, right? Um, and so I think to me, that's where I think some of the most interesting tech advances in tires are going to come from. Um, the second piece of that, I would think, and I think, James, you were going to ask about it earlier, I think inserts are going to be really exciting. Um, you know, we've been working with the Vittoria uh, through a couple of our, their sponsored teams for a couple of years now, and, and I, I'm not going to say that technology is there. And I think certainly from a consumer perspective, you know, I have, have some prototype inserts here that I – my most technical guys go install those and then remove them for me. And, you know, an hour later he was furious and, you know, what the hell are you doing to me? And like, okay, got it. You know, that's, uh, that's just where we are. Right. But the the reality in the teams is that we cut them off. You know, you, you destroy or flat a tire with an insert in it and it, you take the wire snips and we just snip the tire off. 
but that's not that is not a consumer solution, right? <laughs> right? So that's the other thing where I I look at that from a pro racing side of things. I mean, we I know at uh, at EF this year, um, we had two riders finish essentially on flats that they didn't even realize were flats because they were on inserts. That's massive, you know. That's massive. And I think is that that technology is only going to improve because there's a lot of people pumping a lot of money into it. Um, so I think if it's it's as good as it is today, five years out, it's going to be very good. Are those are those inserts something people you're recommending to teams to use in in every event they're running tubeless, or is it just specific applications? Um, I, it, at this point, more specific applications. You know, I think the, the teams really don't want to run sealant um, and and you can't blame them, right? It's like, you've got, you know, 72 wheels on a truck or whatever that you've got to babysit. Like, do you want to be the guy responsible for the sealant? Um, it, so I think in as much as this technology could potentially, it's not there yet, but could potentially get us to tubeless without sealant. Um, it, it's going to be all the riders every day, but we're definitely not there yet. I would say all the teams we work with, we're still, we're still a mix. Um, and, 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 you know, quite frankly, we still have, you know, some of the, the specialized teams with uh, latex tubes and, and they're running a mix of sometimes sealant, sometimes not depending on the event. And, and that's kind of the same thing, right? It's, you know, they're, they're like the rest of us, like, oh shit, you know, we forgot we put sealant in that one wheel that was in the back of the truck that, you know, didn't get touched for four weeks and we pulled it out and now we have to completely rework it. Cause I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like you, you think you have problems, like hang out, you live for a couple of weeks with these pro mechanics and Oh my God, it's like, it's just exponential. The, the problems they have. You, uh, you, you mentioned sealants. You, uh, you recently launched one. Silka, Silka got into we the sealant game recently. <laughs> what were you trying to solve? Like, where did you see the demand? Where did you, you know, what, yeah, the market was quite saturated. I'm I'm keen to hear what uh, oh yeah, what the goal was. Yeah, so I mean, it kind of started like I think most things we do with a lot of this pro team work we're doing, and and you know we were trying to, you know, personally I I, I was just very anti sealant. I was anti tubeless too up until a couple of years ago, like, and I really hated the sealant thing, and like who's going to do this? But then you start riding it and. You know, like uh, talking about my commuter bike, you know, you get to work and you see the little sealant like bubble on the outside of the tire. You're like, oh, shit. I flatted on the way in and didn't even know I flatted on the way in because it's not a flat. Like, that's kind of cool. And so I, th I think my perspective on that turned uh, into something more like, oh, if it's, you know, 30 minutes of effort every, you know, whatever quarter to kind of never flat again okay, I'm in, you know, like that, I can go with that. But, you know, we saw certainly with the, the pro teams that the sealants don't work very well. We see that the, the tire pressures that they're running tend to be higher. Um, and, and partly that's uh, road surfaces, partly that's the speed that the guys are going. Um, and we just saw that the sealants didn't work well at those high pressures. And then the sealants that did work well at higher pressures, like the stands race day have such short lives that it's like, you can't like you as a pro road team, you cannot execute a product like stands race day. Right. Because it's just, it's just constantly it, it, the mechanics would do nothing else. Yeah. 
Well, it's designed um, for the ma- uh, professional mountain bike racing where they need it for yeah, three exactly. hours. It, yeah, You know, and, and well, and there you've got, you know, mechanic and pro mountain bike racing might be responsible for a couple of riders at most. Um, you know, you think of like a typical, uh, you know, world tour, you know, uh, team truck, you maybe have three mechanics for nine riders, but every rider has a spare bike with wheels and spare wheels. Um, and, and then that stuff is getting mixed and turned and different bikes for different days. And, you know, just trying to keep track of like, you know, what sealant went into what wheel on what day, you know, I mean, it, it, again, logistical nightmare. Um, but one of the things that was really fascinating to me was not only the sealants didn't seal well at higher pressures, but when you would cut the tires off, because we cut the tires off, um, it was the orange seal that really got me going. Like, you know, they have glitter and they also have this little sort of like micro bead that I can't, it's like a plastic bead or a glass bead in there. Um, but they've got glitter and I know people add glitter to the sealant. And I started noticing that I never once had seen a piece of glitter in a puncture. And it kind of back to like, you know, I'd like to talk a lot about mental models, like, oh, in all, in my, all of our minds, like the glitter is like in suspension in this liquid. And then when the liquid wants to rush out through the hole, it carries the glitter with it. And what I came to realize, and and we built a test rig where we can puncture a spinning tire. um, And you never find, almost never find the glitter in the hole. And, And the model in my head changed to be that, oh, you know, a wheel at 25 miles an hour rolling down the road is a big centrifuge, right? And a piece of plastic glitter or cornmeal or plastic bead or whatever, like it's pinned to the outer, you know, the casing of the wheel. And it's really not mobile in this environment. You know, that it's not, I think a lot of people think there's just like a giant puddle of sealant in the bottom of the rim. And, you know, all you have to do is just roll through that puddle a couple of times and all this stuff's going to come through. And that just doesn't, work out to be the case you know we unless you stop have this thing it does 36 punctures in the Mm. tire and yeah and yeah exactly and then you stop and then that that is what happens right and so i think that's why that that model persists like oh well i stop and then i just spun it a couple times and every time it hits the bottom it stops hissing you know um but when you're actually riding especially with any velocity like that that is not what's happening um and so i got really kind of obsessed with like well what the hell could we put in there that would stay mobile um, or be able to migrate, you know, remain in dispersion. And, and so went down all these routes of trying different, you know, high surface area, low density things. And we, we ended up coming across this, um, pyrolyzed carbon fiber, which is just essentially carbon fiber with none of the sizing or epoxy, uh, on it. And we found if you, if you make the sealant foam a little bit, not much, but just a little bit, that the foam just like holds all these little carbon fibers in it. You know, I mean, they're six microns in diameter. They're like three to 10 millimeters long um, and they will stay dispersed. And so when you do have a puncture, all those bubbles rush to the puncture and they carry the fiber with it. Um, and so with that, we we found that, oh, you could, you actually do end up with like a little dam of carbon fiber behind each hole when you, when you puncture it. It's pretty cool. So, so you know, one of those like, I don't know, somebody who likes to like invent things and tinker it's it's always fun when you like have a a picture of how something should work in your mind and then it actually does that because like because you guys probably know like 99 out of 100 times it doesn't (laughs) like oh the thing i thought was going to happen didn't (laughs) well what am i missing and and this was just one i mean it it worked so that that's 
the birth of our sealant product. Mm. Josh, I'm curious, did you consider cat hair? Because that stuff seems to be like, seems to get into everything and seems to just weave its way yeah. into everything. It seems like that would have been perfect too. And it's certainly available in abundance. I, oh my God. So we, my wife, we, we like rescue elderly dogs. We've got like four Pomeranian sort of mixed things that we've rescued over the last couple of years. And they're all like, you know, we've got a toothless one and a blind one and a diabetic one. And I go, but but they're, I, I kid you not, I, I have thought about that Pomeranian hair, that like squiggly, like mm -hmm. it, you know, my kid, my kids always joke. It's like, it's like they can shoot it up your nose, you know, <laughs> from a distance. Cause you're always like, is that, what is, oh God, I've got a dog hair in my nose. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of that same thing though, right? You know, the, 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 the thing that actually led me to carbon was, uh, or really thinking about carbon was, um, you know, when it's, when it's pure, like when it doesn't have the sizing on it, it's really dangerous because if it gets airborne, it will stay airborne. It's so light. And so you have to be really careful handling it. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's, it's cool. The, the company that's making it for us is recycling it. So we're actually recycling like bike frames and rims and it, like our prototype batch of sealant was actually made from the bodywork of a Corvette C5R Le Mans race car that was crashed um, that they recycled. And, but it's, it's the same problem by the end of that process. It's, it's this super light, pure carbon that really easily gets into air. And so like the goal is to like very quickly get it into the liquid, um, where it's, it's contained, but it, it's a lot like dog hair or cat hair. Um, and, and it, in the sealant, it does kind of have that same effect, right? It just, it just disperses kind of a little bit everywhere all the time. You have me thinking about limited edition runs of the sealant where you advertise what the where the carbon's from, so you could have your <laughs> your, your Pinarello dogma sealant and your uh, yeah your Ferrari yeah. Ferrari grade. I, I you know I, I will say it, it's it's been fun. A, a number of companies have reached out to say because yeah it, it's one of the things nobody talks about uh, in the you know in this world right as as green as everybody's trying to be or pretending to be you know carbon is is like the most anti green material we could be making stuff from, right? I mean, it, it's it's petroleum that you put, you know, gigawatts of energy into refining into this super refined petroleum thing. And then you coat it with more petroleum things and then you cook it under really high temperature, right? I mean, it's like, you just look, it's like, oh my God. It like, there's just a ton of energy in it. But, but because it's so complicated, there's also quite a bit of scrap. I mean, you know, most factories you talk with, I mean, they're, you know, if, if you have a carbon factory and you're less than like three, 4% scrap, I mean, you're, and, and the aerospace guys are, are the worst because everything is so safety critical that, you know, it's, you know, you non-destructively tested. And if there's any doubt, it's scrapped, right? Because you can't, you can't remake it. You can't fix it. Um, and so, you know, the scrap, the rate of scrap in the cycling world is high. The rate of scrap in the aerospace world is, is shockingly high. Um, and, and that's baked into the cost of, you know, why is that plane $400 million? Well, it's partly because they probably made two of them to get one of them, um, you know, on top of all the other fees and paperwork and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just, there's a lot of scrap. And, and for the last 20 years, I know every composite show I've gone to, there's people talking about recycling it, but the problem is there's no end consumer for that product. And so it was exciting for us to, to, to work with carbon CFR, the company that's doing the recycling to actually become a consumer of, you know, post-consumer carbon. Um, 
and you know, I think right now it's us, and I think they're doing a lot of um, they're selling it into concrete as like a concrete reinforcer. But you know, the the bicycle guys aren't using recycled carbon, and the aerospace guys definitely aren't going to use recycled carbon. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the uh, this topic of this company's CFR and recycling carbon because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast have just had the same idea. Like, oh, I'd love to hear more from this CFR company. Funny you should mention that because, Josh, thankfully, you put me in touch with the people from CFR a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about tires in it. Mm. So uh, rest assured, Nerd Alert listeners, there is an upcoming podcast episode with me talking about carbon recycling with CFR. So stay tuned for that one. And I, I will say that it, it's an amazing story. And my favorite thing about them is the the two byproducts of this pyrolization process are methane, which they actually pump back into the furnace. to So like once you start the recycling, the methane given off is actually pumped back into the system to be used to heat the system to – so like this 100 pounds of carbon is providing the heat for the next 100 pounds. But then all the epoxy – uh, and the sizing comes off as a liquid, and they recycle that on site into jet fuel. And as part of their development process, they have a jet engine on site <laughs> that they can run. And so they've got, I'm sure he'll he'll tell you the story, but they have like the neighboring building where they accidentally blew all the windows out <laughs> by <laughs> by running their jet engine a little bit too hard. And uh, so just it's an <laughs> It's you, you will really enjoy talking to Tim from CFR. I mean, it, it's an amazing process from a, a recycling point of view. But I mean, it's just the stuff that they're into and the stuff that they're doing. It's like we're like down there. And he's like, oh, yeah, let me show you my jet engine. It's like you're what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, we blew the blew the windows out of our neighbor's barn. He's like, oh, my God, <laughs> our neighbor's <laughs> building or whatever. Like, like I, I want to come work with you guys. This, this is awesome. So, <laughs> that. That feels like the uh, the perfect place to wrap up a nerd alert podcast is uh, <laughs> <laughs> blowing things up. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so Love much it. for your time and and insight. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully we see some some positive change coming through the industry that uh, clears up the the current state of confusion. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me, guys. That wraps up this week's Nerd Alert podcast. If you like this episode, then please leave us a review. Only positives, of course. Give us a five-star rating. Feel free to talk trash in that five-star rating, but just make sure it's five stars. And if you like it, also, please tell your friends. Catch you next week. Hold up. 